This is God's word. You may be seated. Inside of the announcement sheet is an outline that you can use as we we go through this message this morning. At the top of it, it says City Light, and uh, there is an order of worship on one side of it, and then there's some, some space on that sheet to, uh, to fill in the blanks and, uh, and to take some notes if necessary. Uh, we are going to begin a new series this morning that introduces our 2015 theme, which is City Lights. That's what we're going to begin with this morning, and let's, let's start that series with a word of prayer, asking God to bless us as, as students of, of His Word. Father, we have gathered from so many different walks of life and from so many different places uh, around this city and even uh, cities of, of, of origin and from different kinds of families. And We've all come together, Father, with, with all of our needs and with, with all of our blemishes and with all of our uh, frustrations and, and lack of understanding And with every blessing that You have ever poured into our life, with all of that, Father, we come before You in worship this morning and ask You to to continually invade our life. Your Word, like arrows to to break through, Father, and and pierce our, our, our understanding and our souls in such a way that we are just completely transformed and changed and sanctified in such a way, Father, that, that we begin to, to, to look more and more like Your Son, our Messiah, the Christ. And as we think about uh, these passages and the mission of the church and His teaching to us about being light with our very life in this community, with all of these things that that we bring before You and, 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 and through your, the, the cross of Jesus into Your presence, Father, uh, we ask that You help us to have eyes to see and ears to hear, to, to understand this task and this vision and this call and this command, Father, for our lives. And, and to do it faithfully in such a way, Father, that it not only brings, brings blessings, to the people around us in this community and around this world, but but brings glory to You. And we ask all of this with all of our heart in the name of Jesus. Amen. There is an interesting new book that has come out this year. It's entitled, Dirty Old London, The Victorian Fight Against Filth. It's kind of interesting. The book, uh, at its core, is, is really about how Victorian England literally fought a war against filth in all of its 19th century urban forms from pollution to mud on the streets there in London. The author talks, you know, is very descriptive about uh, some of the filth, the, the literal filth that was found in the city. talks about how cesspools were designed to leak just a little bit so that they wouldn't have to be emptied so frequently. Uh, it talks about how mud was everywhere and, and, and sometimes uh, things that looked like mud because of horse-drawn carriages. It was just everywhere on the streets. There was a suburb on the south side of the Thames that was nicknamed Pestilentia. 
because of all of the pestilence. Filth, even during this period of time, affected change in female clothing. At, at the head of this movement to change the way that women dressed as they were outside was uh, a woman by the name of Lady Harberton. She was the wife of Viscount Harberton. And she described, kind of what headed her in this direction was this description she had of what it was like to get home at the end of the day after walking through Piccadilly Circus and finding, you know, what she called flotsam caught up in a trailing skirt during a walk through Piccadilly, including a piece of pork pie, orange peel, cigar ends, toothpicks, and part of a boot. <laughs> That's dirt. And that is filth. And the Victorians are not the only ones who have trouble with filth. People fight filth all the time. It, it, it seems like it's just a, a lifetime of service in trying to be, just trying to be clean. And in a manner of speaking, at, at least from one certain angle, the history of humanity is the struggle with a begrimed existence. We're always dealing with it. I mean, how hard is it to keep dust off a shelf? Ladies, do you dust a shelf just one time and it stays dusted the rest of its life? Absolutely not. Some things even are so saturated with dirt that even when they are washed and cleaned with the greatest of our technologies, there is still a stain. There's still a stain. And you know as well as I do that the struggle is not merely with physical dirt. There's even a spiritual front to that fight as well. As human beings have been trying to expunge the evil or at least manage it in the human heart throughout all of history. You'll remember in our study from the, uh, of the Bible last year, from Genesis to Revelation, that right there at the very beginning, in the first couple of chapters of Genesis, what you have is God in all of His greatness and in all of His power, speaking a word that brings creation into existence. And He pronounces a Hebrew word, a very specific Hebrew word, tov, upon all of that existence. It's good. It's very good. Even the human creatures are good, good, good. There is no evil that separates God and man. God and man are in each other's presence. There's no fear. There is no shame. There's no feeling on the part of man to try to hide himself from the glory and the beauty and the majesty of God Himself. There is absolutely nothing that separates God and man. But then sin, that is, not trusting God, trying to reorient our life and desires away from the presence of God, all of that enters into the world. And when you think about it, 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 it helps us to understand the, the power of evil and the power of sin when from the very simple act of just eating that forbidden fruit, forbidden fruit, that the knowledge of good and evil, and just eating in the simple act of eating that, that piece of forbidden fruit, all of these ramifications. Now, a, a lot of the time we don't get that because we're like fish in water. The evil is so pervasive and the evil is so frequent that it, it's like the water to a fish. We don't usually see it unless there's sort of a geyser or some kind of an, of a, of, of an uprising of evil that gets our attention. But the disobedience and the lack of trust and faith was a violent, violent act in the world. It ushered in, in Genesis chapter 3, the thorns and the thistles. That life is not going to be easy. Life is not going to be comfortable. There are going to be times when blood is drawn. There's going to be times when there's going to be pain. 
And with that very simple act of eating a piece of forbidden fruit, it opened the door to all manner of evil. That sort of became a, a, a hybrid of itself from that initial act of obedience. I mean, in that initial act of disobedience, uh, the, the eating of that forbidden fruit in the very next chapter, after man and woman have, and their family have been expelled from the garden, you have murder. And then you go a couple of chapters after that, and it's injustice and murder at the same time. You have Lamech, who is in chapter 6, he, or chapter 5, he is, he is singing a song and bragging to one of his young wives that here's this young guy that injured me, he hurt me a little bit, and you know what I did to him? I killed him. Unjust. And then it's not long after that that God looks down upon this creation that just six chapters earlier, He's saying, it's tov. It's good. It is good. He is grieved in his heart that he ever started the whole business. And starts it over with one man, a man by the name of Noah and his family. And, but it's not too long after that that you have man and the hybridization of evil that gets to the place where man is trying to get into the face of God himself. And wants to literally build this tower into the heavens so that he can look eye to eye to God. Which goes all the way back to the original sin which was to be like, say it, God. Well, God steps in. And you know the story. Israel is called out of uh, its enslavement uh, in Egypt, in the Exodus. It becomes a nation that is going to be a light in a very, very dark world. But Israel itself becomes, itself succumbs to the darkness. And by the time we get to this old prophet by the name of Habakkuk, things are so bad that, that ten of the tribes have been carried away into captivity by the Assyrians. And now here it is just about a century later and Habakkuk is looking around him and he sees the same thing happening with what is the remnant of Israel. Those two tribes in the south, south Judah. And he's seeing all of the things that are going on and it's exactly the same kind of things that you saw in the nations. And it was exactly the same kind of thing of the disobedience, the, the, the lack of understanding, the lack of love, the lack of reverence in the presence of God, the lack of, of faith, the lack of trust that he saw in North Israel. He sees it among his own people in South Judah. And in Habakkuk chapter 1, verse 3, he is talking to God. He says, why do you make me look at all of this injustice? This morning, I was reading uh, the paper, and uh, they were talking about all of the things that have been happening in Paris, France, and, uh, and there was a little side article about all of the things that the Boko Haram has been doing in Nigeria, and in this one little village, actually not a village, a small little town, probably about the size of, of, uh, of Sweetwater, Texas writing about five days in which evil men went into that city and just, just started shooting the place up and then began burning everything down. And, and uh, I don't know why I did it, but I went to Google Earth and typed in Baga, Nigeria, and it brought up a 3D picture of Baga, Nigeria from probably six months ago. And I'm looking at this little town that absolutely, and the witness of this, all of this carnage who escapes it, there is not a single building standing up in this village anymore. And I couldn't help but think, 
Why do we have to look at all of this injustice? And he continues talking to God, Habakkuk. He says, why do you tolerate wrongdoing? Destruction and violence are before me. There is strife and conflict abounds. In other words, what Habakkuk is saying, asking is the same kind of thing that we have all asked at times. Why do we have to see all of this evil around us? It's a legitimate question. And it's a question that we have all asked. God, why don't you do something about all of this? Well, Habakkuk is one of the privileged prophets or people, I think, in the entire history of the world because God answers him. And he says in verse 5, I'm going to do something in your days that you would not believe. Even if you were told, I am raising up the Babylonians. That ruthless and impetuous people that does not sound very good. Who sweep across the whole earth to seize dwellings not their own. And you remember that this is what happened. That the Babylonians came into that part of the world, the Mediterranean part of the world where Israel was located. And they laid siege to Jerusalem a couple of times. And at the final one in 586 B.C., the Babylonians had had enough of the insurgency and of the rebellion of, of what they considered to be a vassal state, a conquered people. And they, they surrounded Jerusalem and they raised it to the ground and the temple was destroyed. And the people were deported once again. South Judah did not return to God in faith. And the Babylonians come in judgment of the nation. And those people are carried off into captivity. But it's also about this time that another prophet, Habakkuk was not the only one. There were lots of prophets. But there's another prophet, this one by the name of Isaiah. Isaiah is like Habakkuk wondering about the evil. And in the ch sixth chapter of, of, of Isaiah, he's there in, 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 in the, the temple area wondering about what is going to happen to, to Israel, or to South Judah. Just like Habakkuk. What's going to happen? But in chapter 9, in verse 2, Isaiah says, The people walking in, in darkness have seen a great what? Have seen a great what, church? Light on those living in the land of deep darkness, deep, deep, deep darkness, a light has dawned. You drop down five verses and Isaiah says, he will reign, this king, this Messiah who is coming. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with what? Justice and with what? Righteousness. From that time on and what? Forever. Meaning that the curse of Genesis 3, the thorns and the thistles that not only made their way, rooted themselves in the earth, but rooted themselves in our hearts, that all of that is going to be reversed. And at the end of Isaiah, in this magnificent vision that he has at the end of that book, he says, instead of the thorn bush will grow the juniper. And instead of the briars, the thistles, the myrtle will grow. And this will be for the Lord's renown. For an everlasting sign that will endure forever. And one day, folks, this King, the Messiah, came. He brought light and He brought justice and He brought righteousness and He reversed the thorns and the thistles. This Messiah comes. He is born in Bethlehem. He grows up in Nazareth. 
And at the age of 30, after John the Baptist is put in prison, he begins his ministry. In the beginning, it's up in northern Galilee. And he's traveling down to Jerusalem and back up to Galilee. And he does that several times in his ministry. He even goes into the northern parts. He goes into the Decapolis. And he preaches and he teaches. But one day, in in the area of the temple, during a great festival of lights, in John chapter 8, this one says, I am the, you say it, light. Say that with me. I am the light of the world. He says it. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. And he teaches about how life is to be properly lived as his disciple. When his life intersects your life in faith and in trust and obedience, you become his disciple. You are changed. And following in his steps means you learn how to love as he loved and how to forgive as he forgave and how to be generous as he is all giving and how to overcome evil in the world. And the Messiah Jesus preaches about the kingdom of God. God's reign over His creation, over His creatures. And how everything that has been completely undone will be reversed. How everything that has completely fragmented will be reestablished. And for this to happen, this Messiah, this Jesus of Nazareth, dies for the sins of humans. And He doesn't just die, but He suffers. And He doesn't just suffer and die, but He dies a cruel death as a criminal on a cross. But in so doing, He defeats death. He just doesn't hit death and bounce back. He hits death and goes through it to the other side. He is resurrected. The first fruit of those that are resurrected. And even though He was born humbly in a stable and grew up poor and executed in injustice on a cross as a criminal, He is exalted to the right hand of God where He reigns. And 50 days after that cross, 10 days after His ascension, these disciples beginning on Pentecost begin to go into all of the world with the message that the King has come and is inviting everyone to come into His kingdom. And and by the time that this mission begins, the world has a common language in which to communicate. Everybody is speaking Greek, regardless of whatever other language they're born with. And during this period of time, there's globalization in, in ways that have not ever been seen before or since until our own present time. The world has Roman roads. And not just the roads, but the Roman peace that allows travel everywhere. And and the first places that these disciples of Jesus go in all of these cities of the known world are the synagogues. And where do those synagogues come from? They came from the people that Habakkuk had preached to who were taken off into captivity and who had created these synagogues as a way to, to conserve their Jewish identity and to, to, to continue generation after generation to teach what it meant to be Jewish, to be a Hebrew according to Torah. And inside of these synagogues were, were people that were not Hebrew in their DNA, were not Hebrew by birth, but had heard the message in, the, in, in, in their growing up among the multitude of the gods and the idols 
they had begun to hear a message about a single God and His creation of the world and His plans for the world. And it is out of these synagogues, these community centers of sorts where the Jewish faith was taught and maintained, it is here that the Gospel, the good news is preached and the world is changed throughout all of those cities, throughout all of the world. And Habakkuk's question, what are you going to do about all of the evil? God. What are you going to do about all of the unrighteous and the in, uh, unrighteousness and all of the injustice and the meanness and the hostility and the unfairness, the evil God? What are you going to do about it? That is answered. The answer is to reverse everything that that first act of disobedience brought into the world. People are brought back by faith in Jesus into relationship with God because their sins have been forgiven. Legally removed. As a result, death is defeated, which means that death is not the bottom line. Death is not going to have the final say. Death is not all-powerful anymore. God's Spirit is going to be poured into people's hearts so that the power of sin that destroys is reversed and they become sanctified, which means that in all, all of their all of their efforts and all of their, their, their sacrifices to try to make themselves right and meritous in God's eyes and had failed miserably and had become enslaved to, all of that is reversed. They become holy. And you know what holy means? At one practical point, it means to be holy, church, means to be able to go into the presence of God. And to these disciples, Jesus said in the text that, that David read so marvelously a few minutes ago to us, Jesus said to His disciples, You are the light of the world. A town built on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand and it gives light to everyone in the house in the same way that your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. Jesus not only calls us to, to trust for our salvation, to have our sins washed away, but He calls this church to get into the ministry of changing the world. Jesus calls His disciples to live as light as He lived as light in the world. Christians, in other words, bring godly influence into the world. <coughs> That's what it means when He says that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father. The big question is, how do you do that? How do you do that? And that's what we're going to be unpacking in the coming weeks, but a preview is on that banner behind me. Three words. We bring godly influence into the world. We create a godly culture around us by what we worship. That's why that word magnify is right there in the middle. It is the core of everything. The psalmist says, Psalm 34, verse 3, Oh, magnify the Lord with me and let us exalt His name together. You know as well as I do that we live in a culture and we live in a world where God is being diminished and squeezed down and faded out and put into a file and put into a category and into a domain that is very, very private so that it doesn't have to be seen or felt or touched by anybody. The psalmist is saying, let us magnify God in our hearts. Magnify the Lord with me in worship. 
Number two, it's by what we do, which is ministry. As we draw near to God in worship, we are changed. We are freed up from the guilt and the pride and the selfishness and the self-centeredness in such a way that we're able to do something that doesn't reflect back on us primarily, but back on God. It's not, as Jesus says in Matthew chapter 5, that we get the thanks, but God gets the glory. And it's also by what we say. How is anyone going to know the greatness of God unless we tell them? How is anyone going to know the greatness of God unless that's reflected in the way that we live? We have a message. We have a message. We speak good news. And that good news is more than just a decision. That good news is about a changed life. It is about becoming a disciple of Jesus of Nazareth. Acts chapter 14, after they had preached the gospel to that city and had made many disciples. That's what we're going to be looking at in the next couple for the next two months is worship and our ministry and our message. And how we as light in this city reflect back on the greatness of God. There's a, there's a show in closing. I, want, I don't even know the name of the show. I've just seen the commercials of it. It may have not even come on TV yet. But uh, it, I, I don't know why. I, I, I used to swear off reality shows, but now I, I, it seems to be the only thing I watch. This show in the advertisement has a bunch of master carpenters. They're furniture makers by trade and, and experts in what they do. And they're selected, I guess, they have to kind of uh, give uh, samples of their work in order you know, to be judged, in order to qualify to be on the show. But basically what they're, they're doing is taking a, a terrible piece of wood, a, a pile of distressed lumber, you know, wood that we would throw away. It might be an old rowboat that is, it would sink if you put it in the water and they're told to make a piece of furniture out of it that nobody has ever seen before. And I don't know what it is about the creative process or whatever it might be, but, you know, in this commercial they kind of show what they're making it out of and they cut very quickly to what is made. And it's breathtaking to me some of the things that they're able to do. To take this thing that is not pure and to take this thing that is not pristine and without blemish, but to take that which is beat up and to turn it into something beautiful. And I thought, I need to watch that show. And I think that that's kind of what God is doing. The evil has come into the world. We open that door. We open that door. And God is doing something about it. That's what God is doing with us. God is, is taking those lives that are distressed and bruised and troubled and afflicted and faded and, and marred and making something new. And in that what Jesus says at the end of Revelation chapter 21, Behold, I make everything what? New. I'm so excited about this year because of, 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 of the opportunities for us to, to do such significant things in, in, in our culture and in our city. We've been doing these kinds of things for years and years and years through missionaries and holiday harvest and all of these other things. 
but to spend some focused time and to think about the greatness of the ministry and the mission that God has given us. That we are the answer in part to the question, what are you going to do about all the injustice and the evil in the world? The answer has changed lives. The answer is ministry. And the answer is a message is a message that directs those people back to the God who created them and the God who loves them and the God who's provided a way for all of the distressed wood, the bruised wood, the broken wood, the suffering wood in their life to be made something beautiful. And in His power, because of that distress and suffering and anxiety and and scrapes and bruises, to be even more beautiful. Ben's going to lead us in a song right now. And some of our shepherds are going to be down here at the front. If there are ways that our church can minister to you to help you find that light come streaming into your own life as your sins are forgiven, having those sins washed away, of coming in obedience and in trust and in repentance to God. That can happen this morning. You can A, a new relationship with Him can be forged, can be built this morning. Or if there are other ways through prayer or counsel or what study, whatever it might be, encouragement, you know, come down to the front and talk to these shepherds as we praise God together. The splendor of a king clothed in majesty.